0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com give. You're listening to episode 295 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Popper the Poltergeist. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1958, a strange series of events began to occur in the house of a Catholic family named the Hermans in Seaford, New York. Objects started to move, items were smashed, and strangely, the caps of bottles started to pop off. The family was experiencing poltergeist phenomena, and because the bottle caps were popping off, the poltergeist was reportedly named Hopper. This proved to be one of the most pivotal poltergeist cases in hundreds of years. So what was responsible for what the Hermans were experiencing? Why was this poltergeist case so pivotal? And what did researchers discover? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, where should we begin today's mystery?
1: Well, we have uh, talked about poltergeists on the show before. Uh, People have experienced poltergeists for hundreds of years. When a uh, poltergeist case happens, people experience unusual phenomena. Objects move around their house, strange noises like raps or knocking sounds may happen, and even weirder things can take place. Historically, it's been assumed that spirits were responsible for these phenomena. In fact, that's what the term poltergeist, which comes from German roots, means it means noisy ghost. Uh, Poltern means noisy or rattling, and geist means ghost. We've covered them before in episode 195, which was on poltergeists in general, and then again in episode 260 on the 21st century poltergeist, a case that involved a boy who was interacting with electronic devices, you know, the kind that we have surrounding us in the 21st century. There are certain other poltergeist cases, though, that we will cover every so often, particularly very dramatic ones or ones that are famous. This one is both dramatic and famous. As you'll hear, a lot of dramatic stuff was being reported in this family's home, and today we'll be considering it because it's one of the most pivotal poltergeist cases in history, uh, which is the you know why it's pivotal. I'll hold back for now. If people want to look up today's mystery, what should they search on? What's it called? In parapsychology, poltergeist cases are often named after the place where they occurred. This one occurred in Seaford, New York, so it's often called the Seaford poltergeist case. However, as we'll hear, bottles having their tops pop off was a recurrent feature in this case, so it's also called the popper poltergeist case. I've seen some popular accounts that say that the spirit that was initially assumed to be involved in the case was nicknamed Popper, you know, Popper the Poltergeist, but I haven't been able to confirm that from academic or journalistic sources at the time.
0: Then let's meet the people at the center of today's mystery. Who are they and what do we need to know about them?
1: Well, this time our heroes are a family who lived in the community of Seaford, which is on Long Island in New York State, near New York City. The family is known as the Hermans, and it has four members. The father of the family is Mr. James Herman. He was 43 years old in 1958. He had been a sergeant in the Marine Corps during World War II, where he saw action in the Pacific Theater. Uh, Now he's working for an airline in in, now in 1958. He's working for an airline in the New York area. Uh, Specifically, he worked as a liaison between Air France and other airlines. The mother of the family is his wife, Mrs. Lucille Herman. She was 38 years old in 1958, and she was a registered nurse. Mr. and Mrs. Herman also have two children, a daughter named Lucille after her mother, who was 13 years old, and a son, James, uh, named after his father, who was 12 years old. That meant that we have an unusual family naming situation where both parents have children named after them when that happens, the parent will be called senior, which is Latin for the elder, and the child is called junior, which is Latin for the younger. So, Mr. Herman was James Sr., which would be fairly common for a man, and Mrs. Herman was Lucille Sr., which is quite uncommon for a woman. The son was thus James Jr., fairly common for a boy, and the sister was Lucille Jr., quite uncommon for a girl. So to keep everybody straight, we'll generally refer to the parents as Mr. and Mrs. Herman, and to the children as James and Lucille. The family lived at 1648 Redwood Path in Seaford, New York. The family was also Catholic, and so you'll be hearing references to various Catholic items they had around their home. How
0: did the disturbances they experienced begin?
1: They started at the beginning of the first week of February, 1958. Nobody saw or heard the initial disturbances, but they found their aftermath. On Monday, February 3rd,
0: 1958, James came home from school at 3.30 p.m. He went to his room where he found that a ceramic doll and a ship model on his dresser were broken. Apparently, the doll had smashed against the ship. Lucille and Mrs. Herman were also home that afternoon. Mrs. Herman checked in the other rooms and discovered a small holy water bottle on her dresser on its side with the cap unscrewed and the contents spilled. No noises were heard in connection with these three events, but noises were heard during the following 45 minutes or so when bottles opened and spilled in different parts of the house. In the bathroom cabinet under the sink, two bottles were found with the caps unscrewed and the contents spilled. In the kitchen— there was a bottle of starch in the cabinet under the sink with the cap unscrewed and the contents spilled, and in the cellar directly below the kitchen, a half-gallon bottle of bleach jumped from a cardboard box and broke when it hit the floor. This happened while Mrs. Herman and James were approaching the box and
1: were about six feet away. Already in this first disturbance, we see why this case is sometimes called the Popper Poltergeist case. It's because the bottles had their caps popping off or otherwise coming off. On this first afternoon, this happened with four bottles, including Mrs. Herman's holy water bottle, which had its cap unscrewed, a bottle of starch in the kitchen, that would be liquid starch, and two other bottles under the sink in the bathroom. Not only had these bottles had their caps unscrewed, they also had their contents spilled, and when Mrs. Herman and James approached the cardboard box containing a bottle of bleach, the bottle of bleach jumped out of the box and broke on the floor while they were about six feet away. Now, Today, you may wonder why a bleach bottle would break because today bleach bottles are made out of plastic. But back in 1958, bleach bottles were made out of glass. So they definitely would shatter and make a big mess if one leapt out of a box and then hit the floor. The fact that this happened in front of Mrs. Herman and James when neither were near the box is also significant because it means we had two simultaneous witnesses when neither of them were close, which would make it hard for either one of them to have surreptitiously caused the bottle to jump and then smash. Things were then quiet for a few days, but three days later, a new set of disturbances occurred. On Thursday, February 6, between 3.30 and 4.30 p.m.,
0: when only Lucille and James were home, noises were again heard and two bottles in the bathroom cabinet again lost their caps and fell over and spilled. Another bottle of bleach in the cellar jumped out of an eight-inch box and broke on the cement floor, and a bottle of wine in the linen cupboard upstairs was found opened and spilled. On Friday, February 7th, between 3.30 and 4.15 p.m., only James was at home when a bottle of ammonia in the cabinet, under the kitchen sink, lost
1: its screw cap and spilled. So in five days between Monday and Friday, we've had three days on which disturbances have occurred. They all involved bottles losing their caps and spilling or breaking. And the only person who was present on all three days was James Jr. In fact, James was the only person at home when the disturbance happened on Friday, so it looks like the phenomena are centering on him.
0: Could he have just been causing the disturbances as a childish prank?
1: This is a possibility that always has to be looked at in cases like this. Uh, People commit fraud and hoaxes in every area of life, including as practical jokes, uh, some of which are malicious. So you always need to seriously consider this explanation. But we've already seen that there's evidence that would point in the other direction, because on Monday, James and his mother together saw a bleach bottle leap out of a cardboard box and smash, and they were six feet away at the time. So for this to be a prank that James was playing, he would have needed to either rig a device that could eject the bottle up out of the box, in which case the ejector device should have been found in the box afterwards, or he would need to rig up strings that were strong enough to yank the bottle up out of the box without snapping in which case the strings should have been found afterwards. And in both cases, James would need to have activated the injector device or yanked the strings hard without Mr. Herman, Mrs. Herman noticing him doing that, all of which would be rather unlikely. Of course, it could be that Mrs. Herman and James were hoaxing, so this could have been a broader family hoax, so we'll need to keep an eye out on that. The next disturbance happened two days later on Sunday, and to understand these disturbances, I need to explain a couple of terms. First, one of the disturbances involved a bottle of toilet water, which is not what you might think. Uh, What we think of as a toilet used to be known as a toilet seat. It was something you sat on as part of your daily toilet. The word toilet itself originally meant a cover or bag for clothing, and it came to refer to anything that you'd use in connection with getting dressed. One of the things you might do while getting dressed is put on perfume or cologne. So perfume became known as dressing water, or in French, eau de toilette, or toilet water. So remember, toilet water is not what you think, it's perfume. Second, there's a reference to kaopectate in this section. Uh, Kaopectate isn't as well-known as it used to be, but it's an over-the-counter medication that's used to treat upset stomach, heartburn, and diarrhea. Its active ingredient is bismuth subsalicylate, so it's basically the same as the product Pepto-Bismol, which is more popular today. Here's what happened. On Sunday, February
0: 9, at 10.15 a.m., The whole family was in the dining room when noises were heard to come from different rooms. On checking, it was found that a holy water bottle on Mr. Herman's dresser in the master bedroom had its cap unscrewed and the contents spilled. A new bottle of toilet water on Mrs. Herman's dresser had also fallen, lost its screw cap and rubber stopper, and the contents were spilled. At the same time, a bottle of shampoo and a bottle of Kaopectate in the bathroom cabinet lost their screw caps, fell over, and were spilling. The starch in the kitchen was also opened and spilled again, and a new gallon can of paint thinner in the cellar had opened, fallen over, and was spilling on the floor. At about 10.30 a.m., when Mr. Herman was standing in the doorway of the bathroom watching James brush his teeth, he saw a kaopectate bottle and a shampoo bottle, which were placed on
1: top of the vanity table, move in different directions and fall off the table. So here, the whole family hears the disturbances all at once when they're all together in the dining room, and they hear them happening in different rooms of the house. This would, again, make it hard for any one person to set up the disturbances to happen in other rooms when they aren't in the other rooms to trigger them. Also, 15 minutes later, we have another two-witness event with Mr. Herman and James in the bathroom. When a bottle of kaopectate and a bottle of shampoo that were on the vanity table decided to slide in different directions and fall off the table, according to a later account, Mr. Herman saw
0: both bottles start to move. He said that James froze in his position. James said he saw the kaopectate bottle when it fell into the sink. He did not see the other bottle, though of course he heard the crash as it hit the floor. Mr. Herman stated that it was this occurrence which convinced him that the disturbances in his home were of an unusual
1: character. Herman himself later described the event this way.
0: At about 10.30 a.m., I was standing in the doorway of the bathroom. All of a sudden, two bottles which had been placed on the top of the vanity table were seen to move. One moved straight ahead slowly, while the second spun to the right for a 45-degree angle. The first one fell into the sink, the second one crashed to the floor both bottles moved at the same time. Both bottles had become unscrewed while they were in the cabinet under the sink. They had been placed on the vanity top while the
1: cabinet was being cleaned. Up to this point, Mr. Herman had been unimpressed by the disturbances in his home, and he suspected they were just pranks being played by James. But when he saw the two bottles move in different directions in front of him, he changed his mind, and he became convinced that something strange was happening. At this point, the poltergeist came to the attention of the news media, and on Monday, February 10th, the Associated Press wire service carried a story on the evolving situation. Here's the story as it appeared on page 1 of the Democrat and Chronicle of Rochester, New York.
0: Blob gurgle glug, bottles all kinds flip their tops. Seaford, New York, February 10th, Associated Press. The revolt of the bottles today gripped the once tranquil home of James Herman. Starting last Monday, every kind of bottle in the house began popping its cap. In most cases, they neatly flipped over on their sides at the same time, the better to spill out the contents. Mrs. Herman said she saw a hair tonic bottle getting ready to go. It did a couple of stately turns on the bathroom vanity and then, flip, off went the lid. All kinds of bottles, rubbing alcohol, peroxide, perfume, liquid starch, ammonia, even a bottle of holy water. In all rooms of the house, including the cellar, there was only one common denominator. All the bottles that flipped their lids had screw-type caps. Herman said the caps were not bent or distorted, they just came off. There has been no explanation so far, but the Hermans are trying awfully hard. In the meantime, each night they put all the bottles in the house in the bathtub. The Hermans thought the first episode last Monday was pretty peculiar, but they cleaned up the mess, aired out the house, and Mrs. Herman replaced some of the bottles that had spilled with new ones. Then it happened again Thursday, and Friday, and yesterday. In desperation, Mrs. Herman called the Nassau Conte police. Trollman James Hughes came to the neat house at 1648 Redwood Path and investigated. Hughes is not exactly gullible, and in this case, he turned his skepticism up a couple of notches. While he was in the house, the starch bottle in the kitchen decapped itself with a guttural glove and the holy water bottle in the bedroom let go again. Hughes was convinced. In an effort to get an explanation of his unusual visitation, Herman called Dr. Donald Hughes at the Brookhaven National Laboratory, an atomic energy installation. Dr. Hughes said, I cannot think of any cause for all of this. It is certainly possible that some bottles might explode from overdevelopment of gas,
1: but it would have nothing to do with radioactivity. It had been seeing the two bottles move in the bathroom that had convinced Mr. Herman that something unusual was happening in his house, so he called the police and contacted Dr. Hugh at Brookhaven. And yeah, this being the 1950s, people naturally wondered if anything strange might be due to radioactivity, but... Radiation won't cause your bottle caps to unscrew themselves or your bottles to fall over. More significantly, the police had now become involved in the case. Very interestingly, the Nassau County Police assigned one of their officers, Detective Joseph Tazzi, to work on the case full time. And one of the first things he did was interview the children, suspecting that they had been playing childish pranks.
0: On February 12th, the day after Detective Tazzi came on the case, both children were interviewed by him. On being questioned, they denied they had anything to do with the occurrences. Detective Tazzi warned them that it would be a grave matter if they were found to be implicated in any way. The phenomena nevertheless continued, some of them even taking place when the detective was close by.
1: Also, the press was now covering the case. More stories would appear in the coming days and weeks. On Wednesday, February 12th, Newsday carried the following story and it mentions Air Force Base Mitchell Field in Long Island, New York. Two more bottles blow tops at Long Island House by Dave
0: Kahn, Seaford. Two more bottles popped their tops yesterday as the revolt of the bottles continued to mystify airline employee James Herman, the police, neighbors, and even experts on ghosts a small perfume bottle lost its atomizer cap and fell on its side in the room of Herman's daughter, Lucille, 13. This was the first time this bottle and this room had been involved. Down in the cellar, a turpentine can that fell over twice on Sunday again lost its screw cap and was knocked on its side. In both cases, discovered about 5.25 p.m. yesterday, the contents spilled out. Furthermore, Herman said, he had kept the cellar door bolted recently. and it was still bolted when he went downstairs to investigate the turpentine can. No solid explanation has yet been advanced to determine the cause of the mysterious bottle popping, leaping, and cap opening that has plagued the Herman home at 1648 Redwood Path since February 3rd. Seventh Squad detectives Joseph Tazi and Bert McConnell are investigating, but have made no determinations yet. Tazi removed the perfume bottle for a laboratory analysis. Other possibly related developments which came to light were the cracking yesterday of a glass pane in a neighbor's storm door and the earlier cracking of the foundation of another neighbor's home. Both lie in an extension of the same broad line in which Herman found most of the bottles were broken. Television crews, reporters, and photographers were not the only ones to invade the six-room ranch house. A dignified, blue-suited gentleman marched in, introduced himself as a holy man from Santa Long Island, and fell on his knees in the dining room. Here he prayed for about 10 minutes, working himself up into quite a fervor. Suddenly he stopped and announced, Everything's all right. You have been forgiven, and drove off in his new automobile. Still more theories were advanced as possible explanations for the almost incredible events I witnessed by Herman, his wife Lucille, and their two children bottles have unscrewed their caps, have leapt or danced untouched on tables, and have fallen on their sides or to the floor on February 3rd, 6th, 7th, 9th, and 11th. Herman himself thinks that there's some sort of electronic field which humans can't sense, but which affects these objects. It's kind of like Caruso being able to hold a note until he cracked a glass. No such field has yet been found, however. Herman spoke with Mitchell Field authorities yesterday and they told him they didn't think anything at the airbase was doing these tricks. Neighbor Calvin Silverman believes that the same underground stream that has cracked the foundation of his home at 3958 Beechwood Place is doing the mischief at Herman's house. My theory is that this stream is undermining the ground, causing a slow slippage of one mass of Earth against another, as in a geological fault. This slippage is setting up high-frequency vibrations which are transmitted through the house. These unscrew the bottles and throw them down, said Silverman, who is an engineer. A New York City psychoanalyst who has studied ghosts and psychic phenomena for 30 years said he felt that the bottle breaking was caused by a poltergeist. This, he said, was a kind of biological life force that, in some admittedly unknown manner, leaps out of a person's body and physically affects objects at a distance. Dr. Norman Fodor said he believed the force was emanating from Herman's 12-year-old son, James because pre-adolescent youngsters are often the cause.
1: Fordor conceded that this explanation could not be proved. The story also carried a photograph of Mrs. Herman holding a plastic angel that had one of its wings snapped off. Now, you can see how people are rather desperately trying to think of explanations that could be responsible for the phenomenon. Mr. Herman's own theory was that some kind of electrical field was involved, but it's hard to imagine how an electronic field would unscrew bottle caps and then knock over the bottles. The neighbor, Mr. Silverman's theory, was that it was kinetic vibrations caused by an underground stream, but again, it's hard to imagine how vibrations would affect only bottles in the Herman's house and unscrew their caps and knock them over, lift, or move them. And the article notes that parapsychologists were now getting involved. They mention Nandor Fodor, although they mistakenly call him Norman. Nandor Fodor was a parapsychologist in the early 20th century, and he played a key role in modern poltergeist studies. He wrote several books and papers on the topic, and he proposed that despite the historic idea that poltergeists are noisy ghosts, as the German name suggests, that they actually may be a product of psychological forces rumbling around in the subconscious of living people. By the way, last year, 2023, Uh, There was a film released starring Simon Pegg called Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose. It's about a real case that Nandor Fodor did investigate, and we may talk about Jeff the Talking Mongoose in the future. I enjoyed the movie, and I was quite impressed with the first part of the film and how they wove in real-world parapsychology and parapsychologists into it, though I'm pretty sure they took some rather broad liberties with the end of the film. But back to what was going on in the Herman household.
0: On Thursday, February 13th, between 6.45 and 7.25 a.m., when James, Lucille, and Mrs. Herman were at home, Mr. Herman leaving at 7.10, the holy water bottle on Mr. Herman's dresser had again come open, fallen, and spilled. On Saturday, February 15th, at 5.50 p.m., when the whole family was home, James, Lucille, and Mr. Herman discovered that the holy water bottle on Mr. Herman's dresser was open and the contents spilled. Lucille cleaned up the water and found it warm. Mr. Herman picked up a perfume bottle on his wife's dresser
1: and found it warm to the touch. And this also happens in sometimes in poltergeist cases. Objects may be found inexplicably warm and sometimes fires may start. Later that day... At
0: 7.40 p.m., James Lucille... And Miss Marie Murtha, Mr. Herman's cousin, were in the living room, and Mr. and Mrs. Herman were in other parts of the house. Miss Murtha saw a porcelain figurine leave its place on an end table and fly
1: about two feet into the room. Detective Tazi investigated this incident, and the police record summarizes it as follows Miss Murtha stated that she
0: is the cousin of Mr. Herman and was visiting at his home on Saturday, February 15th, 1958 and she stated that she was sitting in the living room of the complainant's home, and the two children were with her. The boy was sitting in the center of the sofa, and the girl was standing next to Miss Mirtha, who was sitting in a chair in the northeast corner of the living room. Mrs. Herman went into the bathroom, and when she turned on the
1: light in there, it caused interference on the television set. This was a thing that used to happen back in the day. Uh, before cable television, television sets got their signal using antennas, and the reception was often notoriously bad. Uh, creating a new electrical field near the antenna, like turning on a light in the bathroom, could cause interference, and the picture would get all snowy and the sound would get fuzzy, so you'd have to get up and adjust the antenna to try to get good reception back. The
0: girl, Lucille, started across the room to fix the set, and before she got there, the picture cleared by itself. The girl came back to where Miss Mertha was sitting, and the boy was still sitting on the sofa with his arms folded. At this time, a porcelain figurine that was standing on the end table at the south end of the sofa was seen to leave the table and fly through the air for about two feet directly at the television set. The figurine fell to the floor about six inches from the television with a loud noise. The figurine fell to the floor but did not break. Miss Murtha stated that she actually saw the occurrence and there was definitely no one in the room that was close enough to touch
1: the figurine or propel it in any way. Miss Murtha herself later described the experience in a letter. In it, she refers to there being a secretary in the room, and by that, she means a piece of furniture. A secretary is an old-style writing desk with drawers. Miss Murtha stated,
2: James, his sister Lucille, and myself were sitting in the living room. I was sitting in the green chair in the corner between the secretary and the window. James and Lucille were seated on the sofa. There was a table at each end of the sofa. On one table was a lighted lamp and two figurines. We were looking at the television when the picture started to flicker. I asked Lucille to adjust it. As she went to do so, the picture cleared. On her way back to her seat, I asked to feel the material in her slacks and remarked that they were smart, but thought she was neglecting to set her hair. Lucille then turned to look at herself in the glass of the secretary, and James said, "'Auntie Marie, she's always fixing her hair.' I turned my head in his direction to answer him. As I did, I saw the female figurine wiggle, like that of a worm cut in pieces. As it went into the air, it looked like a small white feather. Then it crashed to the rug, unbroken. The children's parents were in the other rooms of the house, and hearing the crash, came hurrying into the living room to see what happened."
1: Miss Murtha could not imagine how the figurine had not broken. The crash was so loud, and she told Mr. Herman that nobody had knocked the figurine off the table that she had seen it start to move and then fly off by itself while James was sitting with his arms folded in the middle of the couch, looking at her, so he apparently didn't throw it or trigger some kind of device that moved it on Sunday, February
0: sixteenth at six ten p m when James and Lucille were in the living room and Mr. Herman was outside shoveling snow, Mrs. Herman found a perfume bottle on her bedroom dresser open and the contents spilling out. This bottle was not warm to the touch. At 9:30 p.m. when both children were asleep in their rooms and Mr. and Mrs. Herman also were home, the former heard a noise in the boy's bedroom and discovered that a small plastic angel on the boy's night table had traveled across the corner of the room to the dresser broken its wing, and knocked down a ceramic Davy Crockett and a small plastic ship model. At 9.45 p.m., when Mr. Herman was speaking to Detective Tossey on the phone, they both heard a loud noise. Mr. Herman found that a globe of the world on a bookshelf in James' room had fallen to the floor. At 10 p.m., when the children were still in bed, Mr. and Mrs. Herman were in the hall near James' room when another noise was heard. Both went into the boy's room and found the lamp on the night table on the floor with the bulb broken. Mr. Herman picked James up and carried him to the master bedroom where he was put to bed. At 10.30 p.m., Mrs. Herman was in the hall directly in front of the master bedroom, and Mr. Herman was on the phone talking to Sergeant McConnell. Another loud noise was heard, and the night table next to
1: the bed in the master bedroom where the boy was sleeping was found to have turned over. From an evidential perspective, these events were less impressive because they had no witnesses. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Herman were not in the rooms where they happened, and the children were reportedly asleep. Despite this, it's possible that James could have caused the disturbances that happened in his room and the master bedroom, and then pretended to be asleep. On Monday, February 17th, between 7.50 and 8
0: a.m., when James was in the bathroom, Lucille in her bedroom, and Mr. and Mrs. Herman in the dining room, Mrs. Herman, when she happened to look into the living room, found the porcelain figure again on the floor, about two feet away from the table it had stood on. On Wednesday, February 19th at 8.55 p.m., when James was in his bedroom, Lucille in the bathroom, Mrs. Herman in the kitchen, and Mr. Herman and Mr. Lagori, a neighbor, in the dining room, a noise was heard in the living room. On investigating, Mr. Herman and Mr. Lagory found that the figurine on the end table was again on the floor about two feet away. On Thursday, February 20th at 6.55 p.m., when James was in the bathroom, Lucille in the finished part of the basement, and Mrs. Herman in the kitchen, a loud pop was heard from the cellar, and Lucille found that a bottle of bleach had lost its screw cap and was lying against the side of the box it was in with parts of the contents spilled. At 7.55 p.m., when James was in the dining room and Lucille, Mrs. Herman, and Detective Tossey in the cellar, a loud noise was heard upstairs, and it was found that another porcelain figure, male, had left the end table and hit the secretary, which is about 10 feet away. It broke an arm and left a depression in the wood. At 9.27 p.m., when James was sitting at the west end of the dining room table and Lucille and Mrs. Herman were in the living room together with Detective Tazi, who was standing by the doorway to the dining room within view of the table, a sugar bowl on the east end of the dining room table left its place, struck the floor in the doorway between the dining and living rooms, and broke close to the feet of the detective. At 9.45 p.m., when James and Mrs. Herman were in the dining room and Lucille in her bedroom, a very loud pop was heard. An ink bottle on the dining
1: room table lost its screw cap and flew towards the front door, spilling its contents. At this point, Mrs. Herman phoned Detective Tazi's house and asked him to come, but by coincidence, he had already left and was on his way over. Mrs. Herman then got James and Lucille and took shelter by standing in the hallway to await Detective Tazzi's arrival. At 9.50 p.m., when James, Lucille, and Mrs.
0: Herman were standing together, in the hallway outside the bathroom, a loud noise was heard in the living room. It was found that the male figurine had again left the end table
1: and hit the secretary, and this time it was completely broken. The smashing of the male figurine happened while Mrs. Herman, Lucille, and James had been standing in the hall facing each other when no one else was in the house, so none of them did it. At eleven forty p.m., when James and Detective Tozzi were in the unfinished basement
0: room and Lucille and Mrs. Herman were in the living room, a small metal horse that had been standing on the shadow box by the cellar stairs struck the floor at Detective Tazi's
1: feet and broke. On this occasion, Detective Tazi decided to confront James and see if he could get a confession out of him.
0: When Detective Tazi and James were alone in the cellar and a small metal horse fell to the floor close to the detective's feet, Tazi immediately accused James, even saying that he had seen the boy throw the horse which Tazzy had not. He subjected James to a long and severe grilling, the boy all the time denying that he had anything to do with this or any of the other
1: incidents. The next day, Friday, February 21st, an interesting suggestion about how, how the family might stop the disturbances was made.
0: Mrs. Connolly phoned Tazzy, saying that there had been similar occurrences in her house, which stopped when a chimney cap was installed to exclude a drafts. After consultation with the building inspector of Hempstead and several others, Detective Tazio arranged for Mr. Herman
1: to purchase a turbine chimney cap and install it. In case you're not familiar with them, turbine chimney caps are those things you see on top of buildings that I've always thought looked like metal chef's hats. Uh, They have a bulbous round part made of ribs at the top, and this sits on top of a cylindrical shaft that goes into the building. The air currents catch on the metal ribs on the top part and push it around, making it spin. This helps break up strong gusts and downdrafts of air. The neighbor, Mrs. Connolly, thought that the disturbances at the Herman home might be caused by these, and so a turbine chimney cap might stop them. But of course it didn't.
0: On Sunday, February 23rd at 3 p.m., James and Mrs. Herman were in the dining room, Lucille was in the living room, and Mr. Herman was outside the house, when a glass bowl centerpiece left the dining room table and traveled some five feet, landing on the bottom shelf of the corner cabinet. At 8.10 p.m., James was in his bedroom, Lucille in the bathroom, Mrs. Herman in the kitchen, and Mr. Herman and Mr. David Kahn of Newsday in the dining room, when a loud crash was heard in the living room. It was found that the female figurine, which had stood on the end table, had gone about ten feet Breaking to bits against the secretary. At about this time, Mr. Herman and Mr. Kahn checked the house and discovered that a lamp on Mrs. Herman's dresser had fallen over. At eight thirty p.m., James, Lucille, and Mrs. Herman were in their bedrooms, and Mr. Herman and Mr. Kahn were in the living room when a loud noise was heard. It was found that James's
1: dresser had fallen over. The next day, on Monday, Detective Tazi consulted a Catholic priest. According to one account I've read, the priest was Father William McLeod of Saint William the Abbot. He reportedly came to the Herman home, uh, did a blessing, and sprinkled holy water in all the rooms. And according to the Journal of Parapsychology, on February 24th, a Catholic priest
0: who was also an engineer was asked by Detective Tazi whether, in his opinion, there might be a physical cause not yet investigated. He did not think so and said the disturbances might not be caused by natural means. An inquiry was also made about the rights of exorcism, and it was learned that permission must be given by a bishop. Detective Tazi was told that exorcism is generally only used when church property is desecrated. Moreover, the right is generally used on one person who is allegedly possessed by evil and not in a case of this kind.
1: What Detective Tazi was told is correct in substance, but the authors of the Journal of Parapsychology article have expressed it a little awkwardly. It's true that a bishop needs to authorize an exorcism. It's true that exorcism is generally used uh, on an individual person who has become possessed, but nobody was possessed in this case, so that wouldn't be appropriate. However, it's also possible for demons to affect a location rather than a person. That's known as an infestation rather than a possession. And exorcism can be used in cases of infestation. But Detective Tazi was apparently told that exorcism for infestation is typically only used when a church property has been desecrated. And something about that sounds a little off to me. Uh, I can imagine that in nineteen fifty eight a minor exorcism might be used following a desecration. Uh, a minor exorcism is it's kind of a lesser ritual that's not on the same scale as what's known as a major exorcism, but I'm not sure that a major exorcism was used in case of church desecrations because desecration does not entail infestation. Uh, just because people desecrate your church doesn't mean a demon is involved. They can do that just because they're they're irreverent jerks. However, Detective Tazi may have been misinformed or simply misunderstood what he was told. In any event, there didn't appear to be solid evidence of a demonic infestation in this case, but Father McLeod did do a blessing on the house, which is what you typically Expect and what would typically be recommended when the evidence needed for a major exorcism isn't present. Later that day,
0: on Monday, February twenty-fourth at four forty p.m., both children were in the cellar. Lucille sitting at the table and James walking up the stairs with the cellar door closed. Mrs. Herman was in the kitchen and Mr. Herman and Mr. Kahn were in the dining room. A loud crash was heard from the boys' room and it was found that the dresser had again fallen over. At 8.30 p.m., James and Lucille were in their rooms, Mrs. Herman in the cellar and Mr. Kahn in the dining room, when a noise was heard from the living room. A ceramic ashtray, which had stood on the coffee table, was lying broken on the floor about four feet away. At 9 p.m., both children were in bed, Mrs. Herman in the dining room and Mr. Kahn in the living room, when a globe of the world came bouncing out of the boys' room towards the chair Con was occupying. At 9.15 p.m., the children were still in bed, and Mrs. Herman and Con were in the living room when a sharp crack was heard, but nothing could be found to have caused it. At this time, Mr. Herman arrived home with Mr. Zeder, a physicist who had become interested in the case, when a loud noise was heard from James' room. The bookcase in the corner of the room was found wedged upside down between the radiator by the wall and the bed. Later, during the night, at 12.08 a.m., the children were still in their bedrooms. Mrs. Herman was in the bathroom, and Mr. Herman, Mr. Kahn, Detective Tazi, and Mr. Zeter were outside the house, when a picture over the boy's bed fell to the floor in the middle of the room.
1: James's dresser fell over while he and Lucille were in the basement with the door closed. And we have an independent witness. Dave Kahn of Newsday was there and heard it when when the dresser fell. Now, at this point, a new figure enters our mystery. The articles in the newspapers had gotten the attention of parapsychologists in other parts of the country. Specifically, they had brought the case to the attention of researchers at the Duke University Parapsychology Lab in North Carolina, which was being run by J.B. Rhine. They were particularly interested in this case because, as we heard before, parapsychologists had begun to suspect that poltergeists might be caused by psychological forces in living people rather than by spirits. That was Nandor Fodor's theory. But poltergeists, cases tend to end quickly, sometimes in just a few days or weeks, so parapsychologists often don't find out about them until after they're over and they have no way of studying them while they're still happening. In an article in the June 1958 issue of the Journal of Parapsychology, which is the main source we've been quoting from, J.G. Pratt and William G. Roll described the parapsychological state of affairs when the Seaford case began.
0: The word poltergeist, German for noisy spirit, is very likely a misnomer, since it implies an agency apart from any living organism. The term psychokinesis does not specify the type of agency except that it is personal and psychological, and this word would therefore seem more appropriate at the present. But some further designation is needed to describe the type of PK that would be involved, say, in the movement of household objects. Without contact or mechanical means. Disturbances of this kind begin unexpectedly or spontaneously, and they recur over a period of time. This leads to the specific designation of such occurrences as cases of recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK. There is the other category of apparent spontaneous PK in which the physical event, or two or more events occurring simultaneously, are isolated such as the alleged stopping of a clock or the falling of a picture at the time of someone's death. If parapsychology, such events would belong in the class of isolated spontaneous psychokinesis, or ISPK. For the present, the supposition that the cases to which the terms RSPK and ISPK apply are really examples of PK belongs in the category of unproved hypothesis as part of its program for the study of spontaneous psi occurrences, initiated in 1948, the Parapsychology Laboratory at Duke University has taken an interest in reported instances of apparent RSPK. Single instances of possible RSPK were described in the Parapsychology Bulletin of August 1949 and May 1954. In the Bulletin of November 1957, Four cases were described, which were located within the United States. The parapsychology laboratory attempted to conduct a scientific study of each of these, but in none did an investigator have the opportunity to make the observations needed for even a tentative conclusion. The hope was expressed that future cases will be brought to the attention of parapsychologists as soon as the disturbances begin so that an adequate study can be made. The bulletin continued, if some 1st evidence could be obtained from observing at least one reasonably clear-cut case, a case that produced the usual puzzling poltergeist effect, further serious studies of these claims as a whole would be in order. The opportunity to carry out a first-hand investigation came in mid-February of this year, when information that objects in the Herman household in Seaford, Long Island were being disturbed in an unexplained manner was brought to the attention of the Parapsychology Laboratory of Duke University through newspaper
1: reports. So they'd been thinking about poltergeist cases, and they'd come up with a term that, unlike poltergeist, didn't presuppose that a spirit was causing the effects. Instead, RSPK, or Recurrent Spontaneous Psychokinesis, described what was happening in simple terms. Objects were moving, so it was psychokinesis. No living person was trying to move the object, so it was spontaneous, and it kept happening, so it was recurrent. In contrast to cases where objects moved on just one occasion, like when a picture falls off a wall at the moment someone dies. The problem was that they hadn't been able to get to the scene of an active poltergeist case quickly enough to observe it while it was happening and thus see if this new theory was a plausible explanation but then they heard about the Seaford case in the newspapers, and they sent one of the researchers, J.G. Pratt, up to New York to investigate. He got there on Tuesday, February 25th, but several incidents occurred before he arrived. On Tuesday, February
0: 25th, at 7.20 a.m., the children were in their rooms, Mrs. Herman in the kitchen, and Mr. Herman had gone to work. A loud crash was heard, and a 16-inch figure of the Virgin Mary on Mr. Herman's dresser was found on the floor by Mrs. Herman's dresser. It had knocked over a picture as it left Mr. Herman's dresser and had scarred the mirror frame on the other dresser when it hit. As it fell to the floor,
1: it knocked over a lamp, breaking the bulb, and was itself damaged. This incident is also significant because by this point the children had both been instructed not to move when a disturbance occurred. That way, their parents could check on where they were and see if they could have possibly caused it. So, when the loud crash occurred with the Virgin Mary statue, James immediately called out from his room, saying that whatever happened had not taken place where he was, and thus establishing that he was in his room and not in the master bedroom when this occurred. At 5:55 p.m., when James was in the cellar,
0: Lucille in the front hallway, and Mrs. Herman in the dining room a loud noise was heard from the cellar. The children's phonograph, which had stood on a metal table at one wall, had traveled across the room, hit the stairway shadow box, and fallen to the floor with
1: the case broken. J.G. Pratt then arrived a little after 7 p.m., and within half an hour of his arrival... At 7.30 p.m., when James
0: and Mr. Herman were in the dining room, Lucille and Mrs. Herman in the dining room kitchen area and Mr. Kahn, Sergeant McConnell, and J.G. Pratt in the cellar, a noise was heard, and the lamp on Mrs. Herman's dresser was found turned over. At 7.34 p.m., when James was still at the table, Lucille at the front door, and all others in the master bedroom, or just outside it, a plate of bread, which had been on the dining room table,
1: fell to the floor and landed near the corner cabinet. So two disturbances happened very quickly after Pratt arrived, and it seemed promising that parapsychologists might be able to actually observe a poltergeist case in light of the new RSPK theory. Unfortunately, the next four days, there were no disturbances. It was the longest period since they had started on February 3rd for there not to be any activity, and the press was bothering Pratt's investigation since word of his visit had leaked out. So Pratt went back to North Carolina on Saturday, March 1st. However, the the disturbances started up again the next day. On Sunday, March 2nd at
0: 4.40 p.m., when James was in the bathroom, Lucille in the living room, Mr. and Mrs. Herman in the cellar with a friend, Mr. Conley, and two of the Conleys' children, and other visitors were in the living room. Mr. and Mrs. D. Herman, their daughter, Mr. and Mrs. Zito, and the Conleys' other child. The glass bowl centerpiece, which had been on the telephone bench at the other end of the dining room, was seen by Mr. Zito to fall to the floor near the dining room doorway. At 4:50 p.m., Mr. Herman checked the dress of the house and the lamp on Mrs. Herman's bedroom dresser was again found turned over. It was thought this event had happened at 4.40 p.m. At 7.30 p.m., James, Mr. Herman, and Mr. Herman's brother went to the store. Just prior to this, Mrs. Herman had straightened up the house. On returning from the store, James and Mr. Herman found that the globe of the world from the bookcase in the boy's room was in the center of his bed. Lucille, Mrs. Herman, and her daughters were also in the house. At 9.45 p.m., James and Lucille were in bed, Mrs. Herman in the kitchen, and Mr. Herman in the dining room, when a noise was heard in the vicinity of the boy's room, and it was found that the picture on the wall over his bed had again fallen to the floor on the other side of the bed. At 10.10, James and Lucille were still in bed. Mrs. Herman was in the kitchen, and Mr. Herman was in the living room, when a loud crash was heard. Mr. Herman ran immediately into the boy's room and as he got to the door, saw the night table by the bed
1: turn and fall over. The police report recorded the following about the latter event.
0: On the above date, at about 2210 hours, or 1010 p.m., James was in bed, as was Lucille. Mrs. Herman was in the kitchen, and Mr. Herman was sitting in the easy chair in the southeast corner of the living room, facing the boy's room. A very loud crash was heard, and Mr. Herman ran immediately into the boy's room. As he got to the door of the boy's room, a small three-drawer night table, which had been about 18 inches to the north of the bed, twisted and fell to the floor across the door. The boy was on his back in bed with the covers up to his chin at the time the complainant got into the room. Apparently, the first crash was the brass lamp on top of the night table as it was on the floor, and the base was badly bent as if the table had fallen on it. The glass globe was broken, but the bulb inside was not. Mr. Herman was almost in the doorway when the table fell, and he had a flashlight in his hand. The light was on, and he stated that the boy was laying in the bed and appeared very frightened. He did not move at all to the
1: complainant's knowledge. Mr. Herman also had told Pratt and Roll that he felt something more was going to happen that night, so he positioned himself with a flashlight where he could spring up and get to James's room. Then, when there
0: was a noise, he dashed into the room with the flashlight burning and snapped on the ceiling light in the room. He stated that he saw the boy lying quietly in bed and that before his eyes the end table turned about 90 degrees and then fell forward onto
1: the floor without any visible means to account for the motion. So with the lights on and with James lying in bed with his covers up to his chin, Mr. Herman saw the end table turn 90 degrees on its vertical axis and then fall over with no one pushing it. This happened after four days of no activity, so the family may have entertained hopes that their month-long ordeal was finally over, only to have it suddenly and dramatically start up again. So, Mr. Herman decided to confront James and see if he could have been producing the effects. Meanwhile, Mrs. Herman called Detective Tazi to have him come over. Before the arrival of Detective Tazi that night, Mr. Herman
0: told the writers that he himself had vigorously accused James, saying that the detectives had proof that James had caused many of the events, and that it was time for him to admit it without further delay. The father said that James, driven to tears, only said that, Dad, I had nothing to do with any of it. Mrs. Herman, who was present when Mr. Herman told us about this, said she did not approve of the way her husband treated the boy on this occasion. When Tosley arrived, James was sitting at the dining room table crying, Lucille was in the kitchen crying, and Mr. Herman was trying to bring some order to the house, as the complainant, Mrs. Herman, was also crying and on the verge of hysteria. At this time, the complainant and the two children went to Liguri's home to spend the night,
1: as they were afraid to sleep in their home. So when Detective Tazi arrived, he basically walked in on the aftermath of a huge family argument, and then Mrs. Herman took the kids and went over to a neighbor's house to spend the night. In fact, this wasn't the only time that the Hermans were driven from their home. The Society for Psychical Research's Psy Encyclopedia article on this case notes, The
0: disturbances were so violent that on four occasions the family moved out, staying
1: with friends and relatives for a total of six nights. And now that the disturbances had started up again, Detective Tazi and the Hermans contacted the Duke Parapsychology Lab once more. Pratt arranged to make another visit to the home. This time it would be an unpublicized one, so that people wouldn't be bothering them as much. And Pratt brought with him another researcher named William G. Roll. But they wouldn't get there until March 7th. And in the meantime, more disturbances happened.
0: On Tuesday, March 4th, at 4:50 p.m., James was in the cellar. Mrs. Herman was in the living room, and Mr. John Gold of the London Evening News. Was standing in the hallway between the living room and dining room, facing the living room, when he saw a flash bulb which had been on the end table by the couch fly through the air and strike the wall at the other side of the room. No one else was at home at this time. At 5 p.m., James was in the bathroom, and Mrs. Herman and Mr. Gold in the living room, when a loud bang, followed shortly by three more bangs, were heard, and the bleach bottle in the box in the cellar was found on its side with the top off. At 5.10 p.m., James was still in the bathroom and Mrs. Herman and Gold in the cellar when a loud crash was heard upstairs, and it was found that the glass bowl centerpiece on the dining room table had gone into the corner cabinet, damaging the wood frame. At 5.12 p.m., James had gone to the cellar and Mrs. Herman and Gold were in the dining room when a loud crash was heard. It was found that a bookcase in the unfinished part of the basement had fallen over on Wednesday, March fifth at ten twenty p m when both children were in bed, and Mr. and Mrs. Herman and Mr. Zeter were in the kitchen. A noise was heard from the hall, and the glow from James's room was found outside his door on Thursday, March sixth at seven twenty a m when both children were in their bedrooms, and Mrs. Herman was in the kitchen. Mr. Herman having left a loud noise was heard from the living-room and it was found that the coffee table in front of the sofa
1: had turned over. The overturning of the coffee table was particularly distressing to Mrs. Herman. On March 6th, when the coffee table, a
0: new and prized possession, turned upside down and was damaged, Detective Tossey and Sergeant Reddy found Mrs. Herman very upset over the occurrence. The complainant was crying the whole time, interviewed by the writer, Detective Tossey, and stated that she is ready to try anything to stop this disturbance. She doesn't believe in any supernatural powers, but stated that if this is not stopped, she will even be ready to try a medium spiritualist. Later that day, Detective Tossey called the St. William the Abbot Rectory, with a request that the bishop be asked if it was possible
1: to have the rite of exorcism carried out. However, it does not appear that an exorcism was ever done, in keeping with what Detective Tazi was previously told. J.G. Pratt and Bill Roll then arrived the next day, Friday, March 7th, but they'd have to wait a couple days for more disturbances to happen.
0: On Sunday, March 9th at 9.40 p.m., when both children were in bed, Mrs. Herman in the kitchen, Mr. Herman and William G. Roll in the dining room, and J.G. Pratt in the living room, a noise, a thump, was heard from the vicinity of James's room. At 9.45 p.m., a louder thump was heard from the vicinity of James's
1: room. The parapsychologists heard these noises, but they didn't see anything.
0: On Monday, March 10th at 8.14 p.m., when James was in the bathroom, Lucille in her room, Mrs. Herman in the master bedroom, J.G. Pratt in the living room, and William G. Roll in the dining room, Mr. Herman was not at home, A loud thump was heard, and a bleach bottle in the cellar was found with the cap off and the bottle leaning on its side against
1: the box it was in. And this event on March 10th was the last one that occurred. After that, the disturbances ceased. So we're now in a position to begin analyzing the Popper Poltergeist case and see what we can make of it.
0: And before we get to the theories and faith and reason perspectives, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Aaron M., Fabian K., Stephen R., Daniel V., and Jared C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by... DeliverContacts.com, offering top brand contact lenses at always low prices with free delivery. Visit DeliverContacts.com. And by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. customs matters throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there
1: about the Popper Poltergeist case? The two basic theories that the researchers examined was whether the disturbances in the Herman household were normal or parapsychological in nature. And the Duke researchers considered three normal theories in their explanation of this case, three general ones. Uh, First, that the disturbances may have been due to fraud. Second, that the disturbances may have been due to psychological aberrations, And third, that the disturbances may have been due to physical causes, normal physical causes. Only if these three theories proved untenable would they be judged parapsychological in nature. Then, if the disturbances proved to be parapsychological, they would analyze them to see what insights they might be able to gain into the nature of RSPK. Principally, they wanted to know if a personal agency could be found. However, for our present discussion, we also need to consider the matter from the faith perspective and ask if a demon might have been involved. Then let's start with the faith perspective. Why would one suppose that a demon might be involved? The basic reason is that the Herman family had a large number of religious objects in their home, and one of the classic signs of demons is that they are averse to the holy. They don't like it. In fact, that's the key distinguishing mark that sets them apart from other spirits, and it's the key diagnostic criterion in cases of demonic possession. This wouldn't be a case of possession. Nobody in the Herman household got possessed. But some of the articles that were affected were religious objects, making them holy. And so this could be a case of what's known as demonic infestation, in which a demon affects a location rather than a person.
0: What do you think of that possibility when it comes to the Herman household?
1: Well, there is some evidence that you could cite in favor of this hypothesis. Two of the items were holy water bottles. One was on Mrs. Herman's dresser, and it was affected once, and the other was on Mr. Herman's dresser, and it was affected three times. There was a plastic angel that got its wing broken, and there was also a figure of the Virgin Mary on Mr. Herman's dresser. It came off the dresser, fell on the floor, and was damaged. That, coupled with the opening and spilling of the holy water bottles, could be taken as evidence of hostility towards the holy and thus of demonic activity. Do you think that's convincing evidence? I think there are two challenges to the theory that would need to be overcome. The first is that even if there was some kind of aversion to the holy being displayed, we have a plausible alternative for who it may have been coming from. Since the phenomena centered around James Jr., with him always being present at home when the disturbances happened, it could be that James had some kind of aversion to the holy. Lots of kids go through phases where they get mad at their parents for making them go to church, and as later poltergeist research has revealed, Poltergeist agents tend to have frustrations that they're bottling up inside them, and that's why the RSPK happens. They don't feel they can visibly throw a tantrum, so they subconsciously throw one instead, and things start moving. Well, James may have gotten mad at his parents over religion, and in particular, he may have gotten mad at his father. His father's holy water bottle was affected three times, but his mother's holy water bottle was affected only once— And you'll recall that his father really chewed him out when the disturbances started up again on March 2nd. So we don't have a particular need to propose a demon in this case. It could just be subconscious teenage or subconscious preteen rebellion. And that's assuming that there was a particular aversion to the holy happening here. But there's reason to question that. You
0: said there were two challenges the demonic hypothesis would need to overcome. What's the second?
1: The second and even bigger challenge for the demonic hypothesis is that there were a huge number of objects that were affected in the Herman household, and only four of them were religious. The rest of them were all non-religious in nature. There were all kinds of bottles that were opened and or spilled or smashed, some of them multiple times. They included bottles of starch, bleach, shampoo, chaopectate, ammonia, turpentine, hair tonic, Lucille's perfume, a bottle of Mrs. Herman's perfume, and Mrs. Herman's bottle of eau de toilette, and multiple other bottles of an unspecified nature. In fact, there were 23 bottle-popping incidents, and holy water was only involved in four of them and there were numerous other objects that were affected, some of them multiple times, including a female figure, a male figure, a ceramic doll, and a ceramic Davy Crockett, a glass bowl centerpiece, a globe of the world, a model ship, a plastic ship, a night table, a sugar bowl, a bottle of ink, a small metal horse, the dresser in James's room, an ashtray, a picture on a wall, a phonograph, a plate of food, a photographic flash bulb, a coffee table, two different bookcases, five apparently different lamps, and some of these objects were affected multiple times. So, with that large number of bottles and other objects being affected, the four religious objects are only a very small fraction of the things that moved. That makes it look like the religious ones are coincidences and thus not a sign of any particular aversion to the holy. Further, if you look just at the two bottles of holy water that were affected out of the huge number of bottles that were affected, it looks more like the poltergeist was interested in bottles in general and not holy water bottles in particular. I thus concur with the church authorities that were consulted in this case. I don't see a good evidential basis for the demon hypothesis. So the religious objects that were affected, you know, they're just a tiny percentage of the whole and... They look more like coincidences than evidence of a demon's overwhelming hatred of the holy.
0: So then what can we say about the Popper-Poltergeist case from the reason perspective? What did J.G. Pratt and William Roll find in their
1: investigation? One of the things they commented on was the quality of this case for study. In the Journal of Parapsychology, they wrote, Several aspects of the Seaford
0: case make it an especially promising one for investigation. First in importance is the existence of a documentation of the developments in the form of the official police record. This dossier was started on February 11th, eight days after the disturbances began. Events up to that time were recorded on the basis of interviews with members of the Herman family and the preliminary police investigation after they had lodged a complaint on February 9th. From February 11th onward, Detective Tazi of the Nassau County Police was assigned to full-time duty on the case. And he interviewed the people who were in the house and recorded their accounts within a short time, a few minutes or at most a few hours, after the disturbances occurred. Another advantage is due to the fact that several people outside the family were in the house when some of the effects took place. Still another fortunate circumstance was the desire of the family for help toward understanding the cause of the disturbance and bringing them to an end. Consequently, they willingly opened their doors to the investigators from the parapsychology laboratory at Duke, as to others
1: who took an interest in the case, and willingly answered all questions put to them. And those are indeed advantages. It's quite striking that the police assigned Detective Tazi to the case full-time and let him interview everybody and produce a very valuable record of the events. In conducting their investigation, Pratt and Roll documented 67. Different incidents that occurred in the Herman's home uh, between those recorded in the police record and their own notes. Of the 67, they identified 20 of these as the most evidentially relevant to the case, and they th- then divided these 20 into three classes.
0: One, those in which someone saw an object move without apparent physical means of propulsion. There are four events in this group. Two, those in which some unseen occurrence took place when no one was near enough to have caused the disturbance or had any discoverable means of doing it from a distance. There are 13 events in this category. And three, the five events which occurred when one or both of the Duke investigators were present.
1: Two of these also belong in the second category. Their paper then walks through each of the three classes and makes observations on them. However, we've already covered the key points in the background section of today's mystery, so we won't be going through their observations in detail. Instead, we'll look at the three non-parapsychological explanations that they considered. And this is important because in any paranormal investigation, you want to consider the natural explanations first. Before you conclude anything paranormal is happening, because normal explanations are more common than paranormal ones. Then let's look at what they concluded about the three normal explanations. What did they make of the fraud hypothesis? Since the disturbances were centered around James, it's natural to first consider the possibility of whether he may have been hoaxing them. And the adults in the case seriously considered this hypothesis. They also considered whether James's sister Lucille might have been helping hoax them. So, for example, Detective Tazi interviewed both of the kids who denied involvement, and he warned them of severe consequences if it turned out that they were responsible. But the disturbances continued. Tazi also gave James what was described as a severe grilling after the metal horse disturbance. He even lied to him and told him he'd seen James throw the horse, which is another reminder that the police are allowed to lie to you, and therefore you should never talk to the police without an attorney present. But James stood firm and insisted he wasn't hoaxing. Then, when the disturbances started back up on March 2nd, Mr. Herman gave James another severe grilling. He also lied to James, telling him that Detective Tazi had proof that the boy had hoaxed many of the incidents and he better fess up. He even reduced James to tears. But amidst the sobs, James continued to to insist on his innocence, and the scene was so dramatic that not only was James crying, but Lucille started crying, and Mrs. Herman was crying, and according to Detective Tazi, she was on the verge of hysteria. And when Detective Tazi arrived, Mr. Herman was frantically trying to restore order in the household, but Mrs. Herman took the kids to a neighbor's house for the night, saying she didn't feel safe in their home. You can imagine, you can read that to mean that she didn't feel safe because of the poltergeist disturbances, but you could also read this as Pratt and Roll being discreet about the fact she didn't feel safe in the house because of how harsh and wild her husband had gotten that evening. So, James and Lucille really stuck to their guns under really intense questioning. But there's a more fundamental problem, which is that it's simply not likely that James or James and Lucille could have hooked all of these incidents, because they were often in different parts of the house when the disturbances occurred, like when the Virgin Mary statue crashed in the master bedroom, even though James was in his own bedroom at the time, or they were under the observation of adults when the disturbances occurred, such as on day one, when James and his mother were investigating the basement and a bottle of bleach leapt out of a cardboard box and smashed on the floor when the two were about six feet away or when Mrs. Murtha was looking directly at James, who was sitting on the sofa with his arms folded when a female figurine flew off a table. Therefore, it couldn't have been just James or James and Lucille. It would have had to have been a whole family hoax, with not only the parents involved, but also Mr. Herman's cousin, Miss Murtha, being involved as well. The problem with that is there are multiple non-family witnesses to the disturbances, including the police, neighbors, reporters, and parapsychologists, such as when James Dresser fell over and it was heard by Dave Kahn of Newsday, who was with Mr. Herman in the living room when Mrs. Herman was in the kitchen and the two children were in the basement. Also, if the family was hoaxing for the benefit of these external witnesses, How did they accomplish the effects? They might have used string for some things, but then why weren't the strings found? They also would have had to use pretty strong strings. Uh, This is something I have some personal experience with. For my introduction to parapsychology class uh, at the Rhine, I wanted to demonstrate for the students how easy it is to fake things on video these days. And I wanted to use a small invisible thread to surreptitiously yank a pipe off the pipe rack that sits on my desk behind me. But in testing this before class, the thread kept snapping. It simply wasn't strong enough. So I got monofilament fishing line and it snapped too. I ultimately was able to make the trick work, but to do it really effectively, I would have needed something even stronger. And the stronger what you use is, the easier to see it is. In other cases, Strings wouldn't have worked because uh, a heavy object was propelled with force, sometimes when nobody was in the room, and for that you'd need some kind of launching device, but no such devices were found at any time. The investigators on the case also did lots of experiments to see if fraud could be responsible for some of the things that happened. For example, since bottles were unscrewing their caps and spilling You know, was so common in this case. They tried to see if there were ways to make things like that happen, either chemically or physically, in a way that left no trace afterwards. Pratt and Roll write, "Whether a hypothesis of this sort is justified
0: seemed to us a point worthy of investigation, and we accordingly tested the effect of generating pressure inside screw-top bottles by converting carbon dioxide in its solid state, dry ice." to gas. We discovered that when the top was left loose, the pressure simply escaped with a low hissing noise, but without removing the cap. When the cap was screwed on as tightly as possible by hand, the pressure increased until it forced its way out around the threads, but without perceptibly loosening the cap. When we tightened the cover mechanically, we were successful in exploding a bottle of relatively thin glass, but the cap remained on the broken top of the bottle. Such an effect was never observed in connection with the bottles that lost their caps in the Herman household. When we used a Clorox bottle of thick glass, even tightening the cover mechanically produced neither an explosion nor perceptible unscrewing. When the pressure built up sufficiently, the gas escaped around the cap. It is evident, of course, that with a different method of sealing, an explosion could be made to occur. But the relevant point in the present context is that pressure does not cause the tops to unscrew and come completely off. And this is true whether they are put on loosely, firmly by hand, or with mechanical force. We found that it made no difference
1: if the threads were well lubricated with machine oil. So there seemed to be no way of fraudulently duplicating the caps unscrewing themselves in the way that had been observed. They also tested another scenario. On March 10th, a noise was heard coming from the basement when there was nobody in it, and they found that a bleach bottle's cap had come off. Pratt and Roll write, The cap was found to be still wet inside, and there was a wet spot on the
0: floor below the cap. The wet spot was further observed at 15-minute intervals and was found to have completely dried up within 45 minutes of the time the noise was heard. Though this event was of a minor sort as compared to some of the other disturbances, it would be of the greatest significance for the present purpose if it could be conclusively proved that this occurrence took place at the same time the noise was heard as the cellar at that time was known to be empty. The noise itself was not sufficiently well localized to definitely establish that it had come from the unfinished cellar rather than from the bathroom where James was at the time. Therefore, the possibility had to be entertained that he had some time earlier staged the bottle effect and then later produced the sound. The investigators could definitely establish that James could not have been in the cellar during the thirty minute period before the disturbance of the bleach bottle was discovered. For at least half an hour prior to the occurrence, William G. Roll was with James in the dining room where they were
1: participating in a PK game with dice. So Bill Roll had been playing a dice game with James in the dining room for like thirty minutes, uh, you know, to see if James could consciously use psychokinesis to affect how the dice were rolling. This is the kind of test parapsychologists sometimes perform in poltergeist cases, and since they don't say anything more about this test, I assume that James did not show evidence of being able to consciously use PK. However,
0: When this game ended shortly after 8 p.m., James went immediately to his room and then into the bathroom. It was therefore important to establish whether the wet spot under the bottle cap could help determine the time of the occurrence. It was observed the same night by Detective Tazi and J.G. Pratt that when a drop has formed on the inside of the cap, it only comes off if the cap is placed down forcefully and not if it is simply placed on the floor. Further tests this night and the next day by J.G. Pratt and William G. Roll with a bleaching liquid showed that the spot will be perceptible for about three quarters of an hour, but only moist and dark for the first 15 minutes or so. The spot discovered under the cap 16 minutes after the noise was definitely dark in color. If James had staged the event 30 minutes before he made the noise, which is 46 minutes before the investigators observed the wet spot, This should already have disappeared or should have been on the point of fading away. In addition to this, it seems unlikely that there should be any spot at all if the event were staged, as a drop will become disengaged from the cap only if this is dropped from above or smartly
1: tapped on the concrete. The tests they did thus suggested that James could not have faked this incident. Then there's the question of what the family's motive would be for committing a whole family fraud. In particular, why would they bring police, reporters, and others into the home to investigate if this were the case? Pratt and Roll write There
0: are other considerations which make the family hoax explanation an unsatisfactory one. The Hermans would seem to have been inviting unnecessary trouble and running grave risks by asking the police and other investigators into their home and then staging the disturbances right under the noses of these visitors. A member of the 7th Precinct Force was in the house at the time six of the disturbances took place, but the police investigations and interviews failed to reveal anything suspicious. Similarly, journalists Mr. Kahn and Mr. Gold did not uncover any evidence that the ten disturbances which happened while either of them was present, had been fraudulently produced. Both these reporters appeared to be cautious and alert observers. They seemed skeptical about a parapsychological interpretation, and apparently entered the case with the expectation of finding another explanation. Likewise, the numerous interviews and visits by others seeking information on the case have, to our knowledge, not
1: unearthed anything suspicious. And this is significant because if you're hoaxing poltergeist disturbances right in front of reporters and they catch you hoaxing, they can royally embarrass and shame your family in the press. What's worse, if you're hoaxing in front of the police and they catch you, you can have charges brought against you, like we heard about in episode 277 on Victim F, where the Vallejo Police Department were all set to press charges against Aaron Quinn and Denise Huskins for what they thought was a hoax, until it turned out that what Aaron and Denise had been saying was absolutely true. And worse still, you'll have to answer to God for the hoaxing, which would not be pleasant in this case. Pratt and Roll Rollwright, some of the incidents
0: involved religious objects, the Virgin Mary statue and the holy water bottles. Willful destruction and interference with these would amount to desecration and would constitute a serious religious offense. It seems unlikely that a family as
1: devout as the Hermans would be party
0: to such a sacrilege.
1: Furthermore, the Hermans were genuinely distressed by what was happening. Mrs. Herman cried the whole time that she was describing to Detective Tazi how her prized new coffee table had been damaged in one of the disturbances, and Mr. Herman spent a good bit of money trying to get the disturbances to stop. By buying and installing the ultimately unsuccessful uh, turbine chimney cap. In the end, the Duke investigators concluded This was not a laboratory case, and it is not possible to
0: come to the kind of conclusion which we can reach from a piece of research conducted under rigidly controlled conditions. However, the material on hand does allow us to state that the fraud hypothesis is not supported by the evidence collected by the police, the writers, and other observers. No clues have been found indicating either simple or skilled trickery, and some of the events which took place in the Herman home cannot be so explained even assuming that the necessary skills and motives for trickery existed. But as far as can be determined, there were no motives for a family hoax and no evidence that James possessed
1: the skills to carry out some of the complex occurrences. They thus concluded that while you can't 100% rule out fraud because this is a field investigation rather than a tightly controlled laboratory experiment, the fraud hypothesis does not appear to be warranted by the evidence.
0: What about the second theory that the Duke researchers were considering? Could this case have been due not to deliberate fraud, but to some
1: kind of psychological aberrations on the part of the family? There are several problems with this idea, and one of them is that it wouldn't have been just the family that needed to be mentally disturbed. In the Journal of Parapsychology, Pratt and Roll write Group hallucinations might explain the few noises not
0: associated with physical effects, but not the disturbances of objects. Were the latter then produced in some personality state involving loss of consciousness and amnesia for the deeds? Such a hypothesis would rest on a purely speculative basis for there is nothing in the history of abnormal psychology to suggest that the four members of a family could simultaneously undergo such sudden and complete shifts in personality. Furthermore, the police and other visitors, including the writers, would have had to fall under the spell and perhaps even have helped in the staging of the incident, only later to invent some convenient dramatization. In our judgment, the psychological aberration hypothesis does not at the present time merit serious consideration.
1: And I concur with that. I don't see how any plausible mental illness scenario would explain all the data reported in this case.
0: Then what about the third theory, that what the
1: Herman family experienced was due to normal natural causes? On this one, let's quote the summary given by the Societal, Society for Psychical Research's Encyclopedia article on the case.
0: Pratt and Roll note that a variety of tests carried out by experts during the occurrences ruled out physical causes. High-frequency radio waves. A neighbor with a radio transmitter was found not to have used it for several years, and tests showed no unusual radio waves. Unusual ground movements. An oscillograph detected nothing remarkable during the three disturbances that happened while it was present. Foreign matter in the decapped bottles. Police lab tests found none. Electrical malfunction. All equipment was checked by electrical experts and found to be in good order. Other malfunctions. Tazi found no connection between the electrical system and appliance function and the disturbances. Downdrafts from a chimney. Installing a chimney cap did not stop the occurrences. Problems with air circulation. Storm windows in the cellar were removed to no avail. Change in groundwater levels. A well near the house was checked and there has been no change in the previous five years and maps showed the house had not been built over water. Structural problems. An inspection by the town showed the house was structurally sound. Vibrations from airplanes at a nearby airport. Flight times did not correlate with disturbances. Vibration in the plumbing. Inspection showed it was slight compared with the neighbor's house where no disturbances
1: had occurred. Pratt and Roll also did their own tests to see if they could explain things naturally. For example, you recall that the incident that initially convinced Mr. Herman that something strange was happening was when he saw a bottle of shampoo and a bottle of kaopectate start moving in different directions. Well,
0: the vanity table on which the bottle stood is slightly tilted in a southwesterly direction. That is, towards the sink and the floor. The southerly tilt is about one sixteenth of an inch per foot. The westerly tilt is about one quarter of an inch per foot. The top is made of formica. William G Roll tested the Kopectate bottle by placing it on the top after having put wet soap on it to minimize the friction. Mr Herman stated that the top was clean and dry when he saw the bottles move. The
1: bottle did not slide even when pushed. So it didn't look like you could chalk up the bottle movement to an uneven surface of the vanity or anything like that. And there were other incidents that it's really hard to think of a natural cause for, like Mrs. Herman and James seeing the bleach bottle come out of its box and shatter on the ground when they were both six feet away, like Mrs. Murtha seeing a female figurine start to wiggle and then fly off the table when she was looking at James sitting there with his arms folded. And Like Mr. Herman, seeing James's night table rotate 90 degrees on its vertical axis and then fall over, with James in bed with the covers up to his chin, and in none of these three cases were any strings or apparatuses discovered afterwards. Pratt and Roll thus conclude that there did not appear to be normal natural causes for the disturbances in this poltergeist case, and that the paranormal interpretation was warranted. You said that this case was a pivotal one in the history of
0: parapsychology.
1: Why is that? Because it helped establish the recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK, hypothesis. As we said, historically, it had always been assumed that spirits were responsible for poltergeist cases. That's even in the name itself. Poltergeist is German for noisy ghost. It's therefore a theory-laden term, one that presupposes a theory in the term itself about what's actually happening. But parapsychologists like Nandor Fodor had begun to suspect that poltergeist cases might actually be caused by the living, at least some of the time, And the parapsychologists at Duke University had already been thinking about the RSPK hypothesis. The Seaford case was the first real opportunity to investigate a case that was still active in light of RSPK. They found that what they observed was fully consistent with RSPK. It looked like James was at the center of the phenomena, that he was the poltergeist agent. And they didn't have any evidence of a spirit being involved in this case. Nobody saw an apparition. Nobody heard mysterious voices. And from the faith perspective, there was no prominent aversion to the holy as you'd expect with a demon. So it looked like recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis on the part of the living was what was responsible. And that's consistent with later field research. As we mentioned in episode 195 on poltergeist phenomena in general, the Science Encyclopedia's overview article of poltergeists indicates that many of them seem to be best explained in terms of RSPK. But in other cases, there is evidence of a spirit being involved, so they need to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. In any event, the fact that this case was the first investigation of RSPK and that it seemed to fit that hypothesis led to it being widely discussed. The Psy Encyclopedia article on this case notes, According to Christopher, the Seaford
0: incident was the most discussed poltergeist case of the 20th century, publicized in countless newspaper stories, radio and television broadcasts, and innumerable magazine articles in many languages. The publicity led to renewed interest in such cases among parapsychologists. The public interest aroused by the media coverage is said to have been a factor in the making of Steven Spielberg's Academy Award-winning 1982 movie, Poltergeist.
1: So this was a very pivotal historical case.
0: It's commonly held that when RSPK occurs, it's because the person in question has repressed feelings of anger or anxiety. Do we have evidence of that in this case? We do,
1: but it hasn't been explored as thoroughly as one would like. In the original 1958 article, Pratt and Roll say that they will be following up with a second article examining the psychological aspects of this case. However, at the end of the article, there is a note explaining that this won't happen. The reason is that they asked the Hermans to continue the investigation by taking polygraph or lie detector tests. Initially, Mr. and Mrs. Herman declined because they didn't want to subject the children to that procedure. Mr. Herman later agreed to take one himself, and then both Mr. and Mrs. Herman agreed to let the whole family take the tests. But then they changed their minds again because the children objected. They ended up deciding that they'd been through enough with the investigation of the case and wanted to leave it where it was. Personally, I don't blame them because as we covered in episode 30 on lie detectors, polygraphs are incredibly inaccurate when it comes and without a basis in sound science. Never, ever, take a lie detector test unless you are legally required to and have no choice. Just being nervous about the test can cause you to fail it, and you can imagine how the children in this case would be nervous. However, Pratt and Roll concluded that they would not proceed with their second paper. Still, it's possible to make reasonable inferences about what was going on in this case psychologically.
0: Since James was the focus, did he display any
1: signs of suppressed anger or anxiety? Well, we know that his father harshly chewed him out during the case to the point that it had the whole family in tears, so it's reasonable to suppose that he may have had anger towards his father. Also, there's a clue in the incident where Miss Murtha saw the female figurine fly off the table. On that occasion, Miss Murtha was critical of how Lucille was keeping her hair, and according to the Pratt & Roll report, James then made a joking remark about how his sister was always fixing her hair. Miss Murtha then turned to respond to James, and she saw him sitting, looking at her with his arms crossed, perhaps a little defiantly, and it was at that moment that the figurine started to wiggle and fly off the table. So what we have here is an instance in which James is joking at the expense of his sister, who's just one year older than him, so there could be some sibling rivalry here. He's sitting here with his arms crossed like he's unhappy or defiant, and then something psychokinetic happens. This could be a sign of resentment towards his sister, you know, possibly sibling rivalry since she was only a year older than him, and he may have felt that she got more attention or was better liked than he was. Despite the fact that Pratt and Roll didn't publish their second paper, they did keep what they refer to as a comprehensive personality study of the two children on file at the Duke Parapsychology lab. And in 2003, Bill Roll wrote an article in which he expanded a little bit on some of what they had found in this case. He wrote Most of the disturbed things belonged to the parents,
0: and the events often happened in their living space. For instance, a male and a female figurine moved several feet and broke in the sitting room, which was reserved for the parents. Psychological studies suggested that the boy had strong feelings of anger towards his father. Bottle incidents were common, indicating a focusing effect. The bottles were mostly associated with the mother, and the
1: disturbances may also have reflected unmet dependency needs. So, based on their observations and psychological studies of James, Roll believed that he had strong feelings of anger towards his father at this time, and he also possibly had feelings of unmet dependency regarding his mother at least at this time in his life. He may have grown up to be a completely normal, healthy adult, and he and his parents may have worked out their issues and reconciled, because that happens.
0: Right. (laughs) But why the unusual fascination with opening and spilling bottles in this
1: case? Any idea why that was the case? Bill Roll thought that the focus on the mother's items may have reflected unmet dependency feelings towards her on James's part. Um, You know, he felt dependent on her, but like she wasn't helping him. And many of the bottles, uh bleach and starch and so forth, were connected with Mrs. Herman. But I think we can go a bit further. One of the things that's been stressed in courses I've taken on field investigations is that we should try to make sense of things like this in terms of dream logic and ask Whether there's an underlying message there, if you take the phenomena as representing something rather than just being literal object motion. Well, poltergeist cases seem to involve repressed anger and anxiety. It's like the poltergeist agent is bottling up these distressing emotions, and they feel like they just want to blow their top and let all their emotions spill out. Well, I think that metaphor was likely at work in James's subconscious. He felt like he was bottling up his feelings, such as about his father, and he wanted to blow his top and let it all spill out. But he couldn't because it would be unacceptable. So his subconscious threw a tantrum instead using RSPK. And to the extent that the RSPK focused on his mother's belongings and specifically on bottles that were connected with her, it may have been a subconscious, symbolic way of trying to show her what he was feeling. He was trying to show her, trying to show his mother that he was hurting, that he was bottling up negative emotions and desperately wanted to let them all spill out, but he couldn't. Connecting back to the feelings of unmet dependency towards his mother, that Bill Roll speculated. In any event, I think it likely that the bottles losing their tops that featured so strongly in this case were likely a subconscious metaphor for what James himself was feeling. And so James, rather than a spirit, was himself, Popper, the poltergeist. And that's my bottom line.
0: So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers?
1: We'll have a link to the original Journal of Parapsychology article on this case. We'll also have links to Nandor Fodor's earlier book, On the Trail of the Poltergeist, uh, a book by Fodor and Carrington uh, called Haunted People, The Story of Poltergeist Down the Centuries. Also the movie, Nandor Fodor and the Talking Mongoose. Uh, Bill Roll's 2003 article, Poltergeist Electromagnetism and Consciousness. The Science Encyclopedia's article on the Seaford Poltergeist and its overview of Poltergeist's article, Also, a 1958 Life magazine article from this case and a video about the case uh, called Mysteries at the Museum.
0: Very good. So that's it from us. We would love to hear about your theories about Popper the Poltergeist. You can let us know them by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to feedback at mysterious.fm sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515.
1: And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work in this episode. They're available for hire, so you can hire them to do your video and animation work. You can see what they do, as can everybody, whether you need video and animation work or not, by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Akin, where a lot of people say how much they value the video and what it adds to the audio uh, aspects of the episodes. While you're there, I'd appreciate it if you like, comment, and subscribe to the channel and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification when I have a new video. There are usually several a week now, um, either Mysterious World or other things I do, by interacting with the video by liking, commenting, and subscribing, you show YouTube that you found it engaging, and therefore other people might find it engaging too, so you can help the channel grow by doing those three things. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be talking about an alleged ancient document that was touted as evidence that Jesus was married. So next week, come back and hear the story of the famous Gospel of Jesus' Wife.
0: And folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at Mysterious.fm slash 295. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. And by The Grady Group, a Catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the United States, using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients. Learn more at gradygroupinc.com. And by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Doc. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Let's Science. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash science.